Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. Before I introduce my guest, I wanted to let you know that I have a book. It's a novel called Lump, and it's published by the Rare Machines imprint at Dundurn Press. It's my third novel. I've read it, and it's good. If you'd rather not take my word for it, the Toronto Star has called Lump one of the must-read, hands-down best books of 2023 so far. You can find out more about Lump at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Jill Adamson. Jill is a Toronto author whose first novel, The Outlander, won the Dashiell Hammett Prize for Literary Excellence in Crime Writing, the Amazon First Novel Award, the Relit Award, and the Drummer General's Award. She is also the author of a collection of linked stories, Help Me Jack Cousteau, and two poetry collections, Primitive and Ashland. Oh, and she is also the co-author of one celebrity biography, which we discuss in this episode. Jill's most recent book is Ridge Runner, published by House of Anansi in 2020. Ridge Runner won the Writer's Trust Fiction Prize, was a finalist for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, and was named a Best Book of the Year by the Globe and Mail and the CBC. Jill and I talk about nearly passing out the first time she ever read from one of her books in public, about her ongoing discomfort with discussing her work in the abstract, and about her occasional urges to abandon historical fiction altogether. Spoiler, Jill's novel in progress is kind of historical fiction. When I first asked you to uh, be part of this, you said you're surprisingly shy about some of these things, even after all these years. What do you think is the source of that shyness or is it just shyness or do you think there's actually like a discomfort with talking about yourself as a writer in the third person kind of thing? The latter. I mean, I, I say it's shyness, but it's, it's also a sense of not, how can I even put this? <clears throat> it's hard, I think. Mm-hmm. It was hard for me when I published my first book of poetry and had to do a reading for the first time in my life. And, uh, you know, I remember the first reading I ever did was at the Rivoli in Toronto. And I got up and I was allowed to read three poems or something. And they were launching uh, a number of people at the same time. And uh, and I got up on the stage and the whole world sort of went white. And I was oh, like, no. oh, okay. and then I found myself standing up again. And I was like, okay, so you're fine. Just read the poem, read slowly. And then don't fall on, don't fall on the stairs on your way <laughs> down. Um, and it's, I'm much, much better now. Obviously I've been doing it for a very, very long time now. Um, but it it's stunning to me how, you know, sometimes I'll have something very lovely like this, where I get to talk to somebody who's, you know, a human being, and I don't have to go through any, I don't have to package myself in any way. And I can be surprisingly nervous. And then if I have to do something else, I can be surprisingly okay with it. But, you know, my husband and I have 
done some sort of mentoring and working with new writers and younger people. And it's a hard thing to say to them when they're like, oh my God, I'm so nervous. You know, you feel bad, but maybe it helps them to say it, it gets better, but you'll never be 100%, you know, ready to take on the world. Um, There's something about, if I was talking about someone else's work, I'd be very confident and very sure of myself and, and enjoy the process enormously. But there's something strange about talking about your own stuff that makes you a little bit tongue tied. Um, Because for you, you know, it's so much more complex, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, and as I often say, like, a lot of times, the questions that are coming to you as a writer, deal with intention, and they circle around this idea of intentionality. Yeah. That's that's kind of the the biggest target that a lot of interviewers have in terms of like, what were you intending to do with that? What did you mean by that? Where were you going? Why did you write that? Why did you take that approach? Very true. And your answer, the, the often the most honest answer is, because I did, because that seemed <laughs> the way that, to do it. What do you think? You know, what? Do, why do you think I did that? Um, and it worked like that's a, even the more yeah. answer is it it seemed to work that way and didn't seem to work any other way. Exactly. So that's probably part of what makes that uncomfortable is you're you're being your biggest, fattest target is the one thing that's kind of a black box half the time. Yes. Yes. And the idea that, you know, you go barreling into I'm going to write a novel and it's going to be about this and it's going to speak to questions of parenthood and you know um, (laughs) um, being afraid of the world but also existentialism I think I've got you know the end is going to be full of existentialism and and also hamburgers it's going to be awesome um of course you don't do that like okay so let me ask you a question wait a minute that's that's Stuart Ross that that was Stuart Ross's book there you go yeah Stu has been writing about hamburgers since <laughs> a very long time. Um, so when you write, you have just written uh, and published your third novel, I think, called yep. Lump. Yep. Congratulations. Thank very you. Very well done. Um, when, uh, so at, at three novels, you now clearly would have a sense of what your method would be. Do you work from an outline or do you just go on in? I, I, my method is, uh, and, and I'll cut all this, but my method (laughs) is, uh, I've seen my method to two different people that I admire, uh, explain my method. One is the filmmaker, Mike Lee, who doesn't write a script. He brings, he creates a kind of scenario and then he brings all the actors and they workshop for months and months and months and months and improvise and they work out things and he just kind of takes all that and builds the script off of that that's one way i do it the other is is um zadie smith i saw she wrote something about how she basically writes the first 40 pages over and over and over and over and spends years writing the first 40 pages and then as soon as she's got it where she's then the rest just comes like within six months or something it's just she's got to build that first entry point she's got to find the door um and i read that and i'm like oh that's 100 percent. i'll spend years writing the first chapter yeah. and then half a year writing the rest <laughs> that's amazing 
it does. I mean, not, not to put a fine point on it, but you have been doing this for a long time. Your first sure. book that you read that you had that whiteout reading from was uh, with Coach House in 1991. That's right. In those days, it was called Coach House. Coach House. Press, and now Press. it's Coach House Books. Exactly. Yeah. So most writers, especially ones that have had uh, not just multiple books, but books that have had kind of public successes and therefore have had to do the public thing of being interviewed on radio and CBC, they build a kind of writerly persona around them sure. that they can kind of then, you know, Gollum style set loose when it's time <laughs> to promote things. They can kind of like put the little thing in its mouth and go, go, go talk oh. about my themes. Go talk about how brilliant the I am. The little thing in its mouth. Yeah. Yeah. So you have, have you done that or is yours just, is your golem just, you know, translucent still? Like you that haven't is, built a solid golem to go out and do the work for you. It's such a, such a good question because it is a combination of the two. Um, I remember quite a long time ago, Kevin saying to me, you know, I'm like, I do much better when I'm just myself. Um, and it, it's, it's less difficult and you, once it's over, you don't feel quite so terrible about yourself. On the other hand, the really, it is absolutely necessary for you to have sound bites, for you to be able to, um, explain your book in very, very few words for you to sort of anticipate questions that people will ask and and answer it in a way that is satisfactory to them, or at least makes them feel like, goodness gracious, maybe go pick the book up and maybe you'll, you know, be interested. So there's a, there's a great deal of skill that you pick up uh, along the way, and there's no other way to do it except to just do it. Um, but that being said, I think if you, start to parade around or if I start to parade around as somebody who is more confident or uber confident and uh, knows everything and can answer questions um, I, I I'll probably just fall apart it's much easier to just be myself <laughs> and myself should be good enough I, I sometimes wonder if perhaps because a couple of the books I've written have been rather serious or at least have a serious element to them that when somebody sees me on stage or they listen to me talking and I'm funny or I'm, you know, self-deprecating or um, I'm honest about, you know, how in many ways writing, you know, is a, is a bit of a seat of the pants thing for me. I hope it's not a disappointment to them, but, you know, actually makes it seem like the book was written by a person, an actual actual and whole right um but there's no other option for me because i can't just start acting like mr owl phd i, I just can't right. there is the kind of writer and i'm sure you are not sorry there is the kind of reader and i and it sounds like you've encountered that reader frequently that does want that you know capital w writer experience yeah where they the elbow patches and the the <laughs> the, the invisible pipe and the, the snuff seriousness yeah. yes the snuff uh they want that like 
like you say, they want that owl PhD thing. They want the sage coming down from the mountain. Mm -hmm. They don't mm -hmm. want the person stumbling down and going like, I don't know. know. I've got well, diarrhea to go. today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, what I find is that sometimes what, what helps people like that, um, because if as a writer, you know, being too uh, personal and personable and, and vulnerable isn't much of a help to the book and your job, whether you like it or not, is actually to help the publisher sell copies um, to help readers feel like they made a good choice if they bought the book. Um, and at least with the last two novels that I wrote, um, where the seriousness comes in is is in research and is in some kind of sense of of the responsible approach to creating a story that could have been true absolutely is not true because it's fiction but that has the the um it has the smell of reality or it has the smell of you know you can imagine yourself there but hopefully historically isn't wildly incorrect so sometimes those readers they they you're giving them a little bit of a, a solid footing solid solidness foundation under them to say no no you know i'm a goof but i'm not that much of a goof right i did actually i'm, I'm a goof research. who's i've done the reading yeah 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 i would also imagine you have a particular uh i won't call it a problem but a, a particular challenge let's say when you're encountering readers because your books um meaning the two novels the most two the two most recent, recent books are based on built on so much research that you are pulling in the kind of reader who knows a lot of history yeah um i'm sure you have many many readers who wouldn't know the difference if you introduced you know technology that was 50 years too early or too late well, but i'm sure you Yale also get a lot on of, them yeah 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 <laughs> i'm sure you get a lot of readers who um fact check whether they mean to or not who have done that reading as well or or done some of it yeah and there's probably a lot of tension there too where they're reading it with two brains the the readerly this is a novel this is a you know uh, a serious form of entertainment but this is also history and i've got to see whether that was the kind of you know saw that might have been used on in in that forest at that time um lovely that you mentioned saws uh, in fact i have had readers uh, i've been let's i won't say i've gotten away scot-free but i have had a, a pretty good time of it when it comes to readers and i have had people write to me and say you know i i ha kept having to stop and go check if that was true or i had to go and check what that word no is that the right word or um and only in two cases okay so um i have i have a troll who, and it's not her fault. She's she just as an expert in trees. Okay. And so for the outlander, she wrote to me and she said, well, you know, um, I can't remember what the species of tree was, but it, it just is not in that area. It's about 30 kilometers to the west, but it's not in that area. And um, and so delightfully, she wrote to me with Ridge Runner 
when Ridge Runner came out, and it was another, you know, um, flora type of boo boo that I that oh, I know it's just not there. There's no hemlock there or something like that. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, all right, all right, darling. I'll, I'll if if we come to you know another edition, I'm going to try to try to fix that. And then there was a, a a man who wrote to me. I had a Texas Ranger write to me for the Outlander, and he'd been he was retired and just like a super tough guy and he was just like i thought the outlander was so emotionally i just was so happy with it and it just all seemed right to me and i i remember thinking yeah but you're from texas (laughs) you know i'm glad it had some kind of emotional impact for you but then there was another man who wrote to me and said so your character uses a, a a golf tee Mary Bolton at one point uses a golf tee mm-hmm. with her pipe and she she presses the uh, tobacco down with a golf tee, which actually I did when I was, you know, a, um, an extra teenager and smoking a pipe. Which So you did have the pipe. You were you were preparing your writerly persona. I did then. have the pipe. I, <laughs> I, I may even have had elbow patches. I don't know. I'd have to go back and look at photos. But and he said, well, well, you know, the the uh, golf tee wasn't invented until three years later. So but I felt I had to write to you. So yes, I do have them, but they're rather, I don't want to say they're rather darling because that would mm-hmm. be very dismissive of how how outraged it you must get when you read something and go, look, I happen to be an expert on this and this is wrong. Well, first of all, I can say as someone who writes books only about, you know, crappy contemporary, you know, lower or upper middle class people in Ontario, oh, come on. it makes it so much simpler because there's no fact checking. Oh, um, there's no research. I have research to tell you no that as soon checking. as I finished Ridge Runner, I said I am never writing another historical novel. I'm going to write. A, I'm going to write something about a woman my age living in Toronto who goes for you know tea, goes <laughs> yeah, out for coffee, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, please, <laughs> God, no more having to check. Well, I will honestly say this is this is the this is cowardice on my part. I will I will never I you know I don't plan to write a historical novel and part of the reason is because I have so many things stopping me already I have so many impediments and obstacles I would hate to start writing and then have a character reach for a doorknob and suddenly I don't know what it's made of is it glass is it steel <laughs> metal is it iron is it is it a knob or is it a, something you oh, turn? you're just you're describing I feel my like, life I feel like I would just be you know, tripping over, you know, tripping on rakes the whole time. But do you feel a certain amount of uh, when you get called out by these people, when someone says, you know, the golf tee golf was tea, you were yeah. three years off for the golf tee or you're 50 miles off for that for that bush? Do you dismiss it? Do you kind of go like, well, you can't win them all or close enough? Or do you feel a sense of like, uh, uh, even momentary sense of shame or guilt, like, I could have got that one right, or one got through. I sort of feel like um, I don't feel guilt or shame. I don't feel upset, but I do feel that, well, you know, if we can fix it later, if we can fix it in, in another edition and the publishers will allow me, which which is almost never happens. Yes, I I, I have... Um, kind of like a working copy of both the Outlander and Ridge Runner, that is filled with l- those little um, with little flags of mm-hmm. things that, 
And they're, they tend not to be me going, oh, this sentence, you know, I could rewrite that sentence. It's things like, if we get a chance, um, you know, can we, can we change hemlock to pine or something just because somebody went to all the trouble to, you know, now, now that I'm saying this, don't write to me with things I did wrong, please. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to hear it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, thank you to those who, you know, went to the trouble because I do know being a person who has like adored other people's writing and read their book and gone, Oh my God, I would love to talk to this person about why they wrote this chapter this way. Why did they start it that way? And all that stuff. Did I ever sit down and actually write the letter? No, it, it takes, a it takes, as you say, a lot of intention for someone to do that. So I, I do appreciate it. And Luckily, nobody's, you know, hurled abuse at me. They just want to help me correct my book. So, but as I say, very lucky, considering the sheer amount of the, as you say, glass doorknobs and music and mm -hmm. you know, what, what did the main street of Banff, Alberta look like in August, late August of such and such a year? Banff is fantastic because it's been attracting tourists for so so long like before it was even a town it was just a hot springs so there's so a there photographic record right? everything right so yeah. you just have to find it and then go okay well you know um you know dave white uh, groceries did exist and i know where that is and you know so some of that stuff was was very fun but you do have to screech to a halt and go i i think i'd better i'd better look that up See, I was impressed my, with myself when uh, about seven or eight years ago, I discovered that Google Street View, you could dial it back in time. I didn't you can, know that. Yeah, you can go up yeah. to the corner. Actually, I haven't tried it in a little while. Maybe they've abandoned that. But for a long time, you could go and it will show you, it'll default to the most recent pass that the Google oh. car has made. But you can dial back to the very first pass of the google car and in some cases you can watch like neighborhoods change rise and fall over 10 or 12 years and trees grow and houses and buildings get demolished That's beautiful and i've used that occasionally as a research tool in in writing where i'll go back and i can actually say like that was a donut shop before it was a condo before it was a you know um see you do do that's, research that's the extent of the research <laughs> i think i think scrolling back in google street view is very different from like visiting archives and going through you know oh there's that yellowing letters stuff. and yeah. yeah for sure there's that dry stuff i went to the, the you know the um library and archives canada a few times and read a bunch of stuff about internment camps and what was happening in the war and things like that um to my shock, they they do allow you, I think it depends on the item, but they do allow you to photograph these things. So you just go snap, 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 take it home and then read it. You don't have to, you know, be sitting there for three weeks. But right. I used Google Earth, in fact, because I was talking about, uh, I was talking about an area that is very, very mountainous. And really there, there aren't photographs of it but google earth was able to show me sort of a almost a 3d topographic map of the area so that i could sort of figure out could could my characters where would they go how would they go what how would they make their way to the road and 
I did this, it, it eventually looked entirely creepy, but I, I took, I, I took, um, I printed out eight and a half by 11 color snapshots of the whole area. And then I pasted them up on the wall <laughs> and stood there looking at it for a long time. I think for an outsider, it would have looked like something was very, very wrong with me because it was right. all dark and, you know, it was a very strange image, but it or you really were plotting something. You, you may have been plotting something. Yeah. And it's like, look at that. There's an Alpine lake up there. I wonder if you could make it up there to go see that lake or is it impassable? Is it impossible to get up there? And so then you start, you know, going into different re research about have people ever gone up there? Does it have a name? So there was that. There were, uh, Google Earth was actually very, very useful because the, the mountains don't change. It's not like neighborhoods. The mountains are going nowhere. Right. It sounds like when we when you describe your process, it's interesting because again, your first book was with Coach House, what was then Coach House Press, and then you had a book of short stories, another book of poetry with ECW. Yes, and you've talked about the the sort of literary realm that you came out of in terms of the people you were surrounded by and the people you were you considered peers it seemed like a much more sort of um i mean you you described a, a thing where you would each send each other prompts to write poems based on like just a line or an image or a title oh where did you get that that's so cool it's, it's a surrealist method it was very yeah. fun but that seems like a world away from spending months and months and years and years working through exact, you know, how do you get up to this alpine lake? That seems like a completely different world in terms of process where uh, I would imagine that there was a lot of shock for the people who were doing that with you who were your peers at that time to discover that you were this you know deeply serious deeply researched historical novelist who because would they spend, knew me as a goof <laughs> yeah spend <laughs> decades working on these these uh deeply researched books when they were just sending you like you know chicken fart hot dog go write a poem <laughs> called chicken fart hot dog off you go Chicken fart hot dog. I'm sorry, but I might have to do that. Um, <laughs> There's your next one. I think it might have been a surprise to some people. Um, it might have been. I don't know. Um, I, I, it was a bit of a surprise to me. Um, but there is there is something very similar to that whole... I just remember that thing that you're talking about. We, In fact, it was very sweet. We would write down titles on little pieces of paper, we'd type them out, we'd cut them, and then we'd mail them to each other. This is the old days, right? With a stamp. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, you know, the thing would turn up and you'd open it up and go, oh God, what has she sent me? What, you know, how can I, and you would have to write a poem. You didn't have to keep the title, but you had to write a poem based on mm. the, the, the little thing that you unsnipped. And it was like a fortune cookie, almost like fortune cookies with titles. And it worked really well. Like I remember, my friend Jean Yoon sent me one that was, I think the title was, or the, the words were religious carpool. <laughs> and it just, you know, it, it was quite inspiring. And I ended up writing a, a poem called religious carpool. And, uh, but these, these, these 
elements. I I have a I I make a delineation between dry research and the other kind, the more inspiring kind of research. So looking at Google Earth or reading uh, somebody's um, memoir about something I have no particular interest in, but they have this beautiful little detail. And it's very, it's exactly as inspiring as something that just sort of got sent to you and you didn't know it was coming. And it, you'll find yourself going, oh, I think I can use that. In fact, I know I can use it. And there are so many, there are so many of those that the books, that all the books I've written couldn't exist as such without those lovely little random things coming in from the world. So there is this still this seed of inspiration that you're finding inspiration in those in those you oh, know, my goodness, facts yes. and dates and letters oh, and yeah. objects. It's not it's not a sense of obligation like, oh, now I got to write about a train because they had no, a rail no. go through. I don't I don't care it's about more trains. Like, it's more like like eavesdropping or um, watching someone through a window like the uh, internment camp had a diary because it's a military uh, thing. They they had to write down every day. Somebody had to write down what the temperature was, when dawn was, um, how many uh, POWs were out on 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 work duty, how many of them had escaped, and you know how many of them had been caught. There was a lot of escape from from that Castle Mountain camp, and eventually, I almost started to recognize different inmates and I started to recognize different people um and whether I could use any of that in the you know in Ridge Runner it still gave me this uh, a very much clearer sense of what I was writing about and yes there's responsibility there there absolutely is but it, it was far from that was far from dry that was very very much about people and people, you know, in crisis and people suffering and, you know, it's not warm up there. Right. It's cold. <laughs> that kind of shatters my my next question, I think, which 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 was going to be a little bit rude, but I'll ask it anyway. Go ahead. Case, Go ahead. In case there's something rude there. Is good. Which, well, not rude, but maybe a little uh, uh, impol impolite. Let's oh. say. Um. Which is that if you were given that those two books, The Outlander and Ridge Runner, are based on this deep immersion in in research and in the era, this historical moment. And yes, you did get a couple things wrong. You did get a couple of bushes wrong yeah, and you got, got that tree wrong. wrong. Hey. <laughs> um given that, if you were to decide no i'm writing a novel about a woman in 2023 in my neighborhood who looks like me named you know jill in, or al <laughs> jadamson you know yeah. uh gail amamsol exactly yeah. yeah would you feel liberated or would you feel a little naked like would you feel mm. like oh no i don't get to spend the next eight years in an archive working out what you know this uh jadamson person would have for breakfast i just have to write it would you feel like you know too exposed at this point to to not have that process in other words has that process become kind of comfortable or is it again 
it's all just inspiration. It still has to spark something. Oh, that is such a good question. And I would liken it to something else. Uh, so the question is basically is research and having having to get things right and having to research a bit of sort of security armor. Does it protect you in some way from going off just as you say, being naked and going off road and, and talking about um, just raw you, just yeah. you. The, um, impolite, the impolite version is like, have you come to need it? <laughs> have you have come, come to, to need, need that it? Yeah. That is a very good question. You know what I think it's, it's like, um, it's like in poetry, <clears throat> there is, there is form and some people use form. Uh, they, they will, you know, uh, pull out a sestina or a villanelle or they mm -hmm. pull out a you know um a various various different forms they'll learn the form and they'll use the form as a kind of an armature to create within and mm -hmm. sometimes to aggress against you know the form um and then there are those who don't want any form at all and just basically just splatter it out there and they create their own form according to their own lights and their own interests and their own voice and that kind of thing. I, it's, it is possible if I'm being honest that I rather do like having, having maybe not research, but not writing about this time. There's something about writing, for instance, something I'm writing now is set in the eighties and I remember the 80s and I remember things like there was one phone in the house and it was hardwired to the wall in the kitchen. Um, and there were no cell phones. There were there were no extensions. Um, I remember things like there were no seatbelts in the car. So kids just slid around mm -hmm. on the back seat. Yeah. Not all cars. I mean, by the 80s, you know, there were there were seatbelts happening, but, you know, not everyone had a new car. And so there's something freeing to me in, in a weird way. I feel responsible to, to this modern world where everything is, is moving incredibly quickly and changing incredibly quickly and dating incredibly quickly. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, maybe I do like the idea of historicity as some kind of, um, at least it's static, at least it happened right. and it's done <laughs> and yeah. we can be sure that it happened. <laughs> yeah. So. I do. We we also, I, as soon as you said it said in the 80s, I was like, 18, 1980? Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm fully certain. Yeah, no. Going back to the question of that, that idea of, you know, building the writerly persona and having to to exist in the world as a writer, which you've already made clear is not your most comfortable place. You have all the same, uh, especially with those two novels, have had so much public success. There's been so many awards and award nominations, and even to the point of, you know, being on Canada Reads, did you just yeah. like stuff cotton in your ear and and get inside a cork lined box during the process, or did you follow it on Twitter the whole time? How how much did you follow it, and how good was that for your mental health? Well, I was. Uh, I'm glad you asked that because I really hope it is a little more polite 
now than it was. I was strongly advised by my publisher who knows me well, don't, don't listen to it because okay. the only way to win is to, you know, drag down someone else's book mm -hmm. and point out the flaws and be absolutely, you know, they want to win. So I right. was told just don't even. So I didn't, I didn't even. Um, but I even I, in retrospect, did you kind of go back and dip a oh, toe no. in? Were you like just no, no, I don't need to keep that away from you? No, it it uh, as much as I I'm glad that um, Mr. Campbell did that, and I I thank him for it. I thank anyone who gets out behind a book and you know goes I, I read it, I like it, I'm a celebrity, and I'm going to you know champion this book, and we'll see where it goes. But it's. If I'm going to be honest, I think the whole idea of, you know, a cage match when we're talking about novels, uh, it doesn't work for me. It it doesn't. And I mm -hmm. hope it's a bit more gentle now because, well, I just do. I just, like, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, uh, I think it probably is. I think it must be. I mean, am I wrong? No, I I absolutely agree. I would go one further in terms of my thoughts about Canada reads and this is I'm I will preface this by saying I would cut off one of my toes to have a book on that in that competition um I will even let the person championing it pick which toe but <laughs> I kind of reject the whole premise which is the idea that there is we should all one. be reading one book I mean I yeah. realize it's silly and it's but they take it so seriously, this idea that we should all find the book that we should all be reading. And I think, you know, I I was thinking about this the other day because I was talking to someone who was saying like fiction, literary fiction is gone and it's dead and nobody reads fiction. And I thought all of my Humber students read hand over fist, they read fiction, but yeah. they read a certain kind of fiction that I don't write and that you know, old folks like me don't write, but they're reading a lot of it. It's all categories. So it's it, the idea that there's just one book that we can all like, we're all heading I towards know. an apex. And right. then there's the one book at the top is like, which is Margaret God, Atwood's book, the yeah. book. Yeah, yeah exactly. It book, will be, yeah. of course, it's it going to be, be, it will by be Margaret Atwood. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it just, it's a silly idea. And you will like it. It will be, it'll be awesome. But yes. you know, it, it is actually, uh, I'm quite old now. And I have been listening to It's the End of Books. Books are going to disappear. Right. They're going to be pirated. They're going to be free. Your People aren't going to uh, want a physical book anymore. People are only going to want, um, you know, ebooks. And it's just, it. maybe someday it'll be true, but it just hasn't proven true yet. You still see people holding actual physical books. Um, loving physical books, buying them despite the shocking cost. Um, and I remember when sort of ebook readers came in, the major adopters in my life anyway were publishers and editors and agents yes. who yes. were used to carrying giant yep. piles of manuscripts that they had to, you know, scan or really read in depth. But the weight was unbelievable and so as soon as they were able to actually read on screen it meant they no longer had to go to the chiropractor right, and deal right. with the fact they you know they were in agony because of all the weight they were dealing with and that makes sense that's a professional um 
improvement in your life. Mm -hmm. But people still love books. You can lie in the bath and read a book. And if you drop it in the bath, it's not, you know, $400 down the drain. It's just a wet book. Yeah. I I do have to ask you, speaking of the future of books, uh, <laughs> about this book that you've you introduced into the conversation, which is this book set in the 1980s. Do you, I won't ask you to sort of outline it or anything, but in terms of where you are now in the process, given that your two novels were roughly a decade apart, do you foresee yourself, you know, this book coming out in, you know, 2030? Or do you feel this one, maybe because it's closer in time, maybe because it's taking place in your own lifespan do you feel like it's moving quicker or do you feel like it's the same roughly the same process it just happens to be the 1980s well i'll be fully honest with you because uh you seem very nice oh, um <laughs> the the long gap between the two books between outlander and ridge runner is in part the result of the fact that i'm a slow and careful and i occasionally more than occasionally quite lazy writer i will sort of go i don't feel like it um and also because i don't use an outline and i proceed sort of uh, organically into the book which means occasionally i paint myself into a corner and go okay now what are you going to do and i have to go in and think about it or i have to go and think about what happens next because it it needs to be it needs to make sense and it needs to read as if it's happening organically and is, you know, if I'm surprised by what's what's happening, the reader hopefully will also. But also, uh, you know, I lost uh, a, a few people in my life and my writing life went on hold and my actual life went on hold. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I couldn't really, you, you need a certain amount of contentment and you need a certain amount of... Uh, 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 a writer I know, Marina Endicott, says you need actual boredom in order yeah. to be able to sit down and and write. And and that's not true for some people. They they love a deadline. They love the anxiety of a deadline. But some of us don't. So it was there was quite a, a long time between the Outlander and Ridge Runner, and that made it that made it very an, a very interesting publishing situation. In what you sense? In, for you or for your publisher or in terms of like expectations? Surprisingly, all three. Um, you know, the publishing industry has changed so much. And people might say, oh, you know, you published the first book with House of Anansi. Why don't you go to a different publisher now? Well, it's a sequel-ish. I call it a, mm -hmm. a you know, a, a standalone follow-up. But... but <laughs> How do how do you publicize? How do you get behind a book uh, when two different publishers or a series, if you even want to call it that, where two different publishers are involved? It's an impossible thing to promote. And House of Anansi did a a really lovely job. They they um, reissued Outlander with a a, a cover that matched mm -hmm. the Ridge Runner, and so there was a there was a a sense of sort of family. The, the books being part of a family and, you know, the publisher being the same publisher. Um, in terms of the things that I'm writing now, I, I, I do have another historical novel that I'm, I'm 
dipping my toe into. And you actually talked about this with Elise Friedman and I think Alex Olin. Um, I have most of the time when I'm writing, I have two projects going at the same time. And one of the reasons is oh, you do the bounce. <laughs> I do the bounce. I do the bounce. And it's like, I don't know where I'm going or I, I am at so amazingly sick of you. <laughs> yeah. I just would rather write anything else. And so I've got this other project that's completely different. And that helps me not, that helps me. It just helps me. Um, and they can be completely different, but I've learned over the years to be able to bounce pretty quickly from one to the other. So yes, this one's historical. And yes, this one's set in the 80s, which is also historical, but really not that much. It's my life. And I can still do it. In terms of the, you've, you've talked about the pressure you felt when you were writing Ridge Runner, because all of a sudden, you know, even though, uh, you know, The Outlander wasn't your first book, it was your first big Absolutely. public novel. Yep. And now you wouldn't be sending this next book out into the void. You would be sending it out to, you know, a willing public that that is prepared for it, that wants it. And as you said, it it is a companion book to the uh, to the Outlander. It's not a complete departure. It's not set on the moon. No. Did that also contribute to some of that in terms of like slowing the process down? Or were you able to kind of, again, create some sort of mental cork lined room to escape <laughs> it? Um, or were there days where you were writing, you were like, but that's not up to the caliber of the, you know, the Hammett prize jury. That's not what they expect. That's not what they said about me. That's exactly what I said to myself. Oh, this is not <laughs> up to my caliber. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I did feel a certain, um, a, a certain pressure because the second book was attached with, uh, you know, an umbilicus to the, mm -hmm. to the first one, but the prose is quite different. I mean, it's not wholly different, but it, it there is a, there's an, an element of it being not quite as baroque, not quite as ornate as the Outlander, but I think that, that I think that kind of makes sense because the two main characters are not living in Mary Bolton's head. Mm -hmm. Their realities aren't as baroque as as complicated as hers were. So, but I think almost any person who is trying to write the next book, and I'm sure you would, you know, agree it's there's some anxiety about it you know i a, a very a writer i admire very much admitted to me that he thinks every time he publishes a book he's afraid it's his last mm -hmm. you know it's sort of like i will never be able to um you know put anything together again i'm just going to fall apart and the next one's going to be garbage and i won't be able to you know publish it and i think that's just a natural part of the writing process it's good to be a little bit nervous about things so if you're mm -hmm. you know i worry sometimes that i'm you know dialogue is hard for me so i have to work hard on the dialogue and for some people like elise friedman it just flows out she's brilliant at it and anybody who writes screenplays or or you know writes for theater their dialogue is going to be excellent but for me it's just a there's a, a there's an element of uh, deliberateness and effort to it. And I, I have this weird feeling that the things you worry about that you're not good at, those are the ones that you eventually, you know, nail down 
because right. you're so worried, right? right? So if you're afraid that your book doesn't have structure, you're going to start to work on the structure. If you're afraid that your book, um, you know, that the prose is sloppy, you're going to work on your prose. If you think your dialogue is, you know, weird, you're going to work on your dialogue. Well, and I was going to say you do well, right? So I have a, I have a, another question in terms of the pressure of writing uh, Ridge Runner, which was, was there ever a conversation with your editor or uh, an agent person or somebody where they were saying, can it be the Ridge Runner? Can, can we, because it makes Nathan, do you have a problem with my title? I would not be able to resist if I was your editor and you had just had this wonderful success with The Outlander and you brought me Ridge Runner. I would be like, The Ridge Runner. It's obviously well, The Ridge Runner. You can totally blame my husband for that. Um, and and thank you for not mentioning the problem of the Outlander, the title of the Outlander, because that, you know, that's an ongoing thing. <laughs> I will stand behind that title. It, it is the right title for that book. It's fine. You it's can't, totally you fine. Know, yes. It's totally fine. It works. It works for the person. It works for the language and the book. It works for the, the time. But uh, and this is way too subtle when we're talking about why there isn't a definite article. Um, for a Ridge Runner, is that there are two characters, and and there's the Ridge Runner, and then there's the kid who, wh whether he likes it or not, there's a bit of a spoiler. Ends up almost exactly like his dad, whether mm -hmm. he wants to or not. He's enraged with his father. He thinks everything. He loves his father, but he's just pissed off with this whole plan. And yet, at the end, you know, he he doesn't see the similarities between himself and his father. And again, this is too subtle for your average reader. And it's really just, you know, something for me and the editors, I don't think ever really, I don't think they ever asked me or they might've asked me. And then I said this and they went, okay, fine. Um, <laughs> she's got some weird reason. Don't she's ask got somewhere. Don't it's, it's a writer. Don't just, just, <laughs> just hope she doesn't cry. Um, but that, you know, uh, it is at some level a meditation on a certain kind of person and a certain kind of hermit who is mm -hmm. comfortable with this kind of life. So, yeah, it could have been the Outlander, the Ridge Runner. And I think the French edition of it was uh, The Son of the Widow. Oh. Le Fils de la Veuve. So they were changing it completely and also slightly spoiling it. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Those no, French. Some of those, some of the, it must be so fascinating to run a French or a German publisher and have to come up with a, a titles that will work for, you know, your demographic, your readers, um, but that somehow also speak to the, you know, the, the meat of the book that you <laughs> went to all this trouble to, you know, buy and translate and all that stuff. My uh, my wife, uh, Megan Stramus, who is a poet, um, had some work included in an anthology a year or two ago where someone had taken poems and translated them uh, all into Japanese. Oh, wow. I believe it was Japanese. And I believe the one uh, query that she got from the translator was about the phrase uh, creamed his jeans. And was trying to find an equivalent 
and was querying the meaning of that phrase oh my uh, god so that they could find some sort of you know not literal equivalent but they could explain it and so there was oh thus began an exchange over uh uh what that phrase that phrase means idiom it's in, it's in, yeah it's, it's just impossible to just one of these days please promise me that you'll have a subsection of your podcast if you don't already have it that's talking to translators about how much they want to pull their own heads off because <laughs> it's just impossible yeah so the final question i have for you is also about a potential future book um which would also require some research and at this point would also be historical so it's right up your alley Ooh, sounds good and that is, will there ever be a follow-up companion volume volume to Mulder? It's me, the uh, <laughs> the book, the uh, book about Gillian Anderson and her character on X Files. Do you intend to, um, you know, cover David Duchovny and his character? Do you do you plan to go deeper into the X Files universe with a with a, a new nonfiction book, it's, or have you closed? close that chapter very important very important um well there is uh ecw used to do these things uh, they they managed to sort of get away with it but they would do unofficial biographies mm -hmm. and jack david at ecw came up to me and my sister-in-law who mm -hmm. has eventually wrote a book on la femme nikita which was a, a tv show way back when um and said uh would you like to you you guys like x-files you watch x-files would you like to do a book on jillian anderson and i said no and he said well it'll pay three thousand dollars and i said yes <laughs> and you know my my sister-in-law i kept telling her you should you know totally into tv you could you could do this you could write a book so you know why don't we do it together so we did it together and then you know uh ho hoped that we wouldn't get a letter from a lawyer um but instead what we got was a lovely little letter from Jillian Anderson who oh. wrote to us and said thank you so much for you know making me not look like the complete you know car crash I was when I was young and being lovely and sweet about it and so uh she I think currently has custody of that um of that letter from Jillian Anderson but one of wow. these days I'll have to ask for it back and she uh, didn't fact check you she didn't say oh actually you got the wrong type it wasn't a <laughs> there was no dress i was wearing <laughs> exactly it was silk yeah isn't that kind of lovely though because you know that's some, fantastic you know tiny little press in canada does this thing about you can you can imagine opening the book and going oh my god now what yeah but, no that was that was that was one of the things that writers do and there are so many to kind of cobble together you know enough money so that you can just keep doing the crazy thing you do what happened next is produced and edited by me the music playing under my voice is by the great alex lukashevsky who is letting me use it for free you can find more of alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com thank you for listening Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.